Yo, yo, what up everyone? This is your life coach, Jacob Sokol, and welcome to WTF Should I Do With My Life? You're about to access a roadmap specifically designed for people in our generation, like you and me, who are looking to figure out how to create a life filled with happiness, success, and a deep sense of purpose, while simultaneously dealing with the challenges of today. This interview is with Daniel Coyle. Daniel is the New York Times best-selling author of many books, including The Little Book of Talent and The Talent Code. For the last few hundred years, Western culture has understood and explained talent by labeling a small, selective group of people as lucky, as if it was some cosmic roll of the dice. One of the main ideas that Daniel shares is that genius is made, not born, and that when we scratch the surface of great people we admire, we see an extraordinary amount of effort put into their craft. In this interview, you're going to learn the three elements to becoming phenomenally talented. You're going to also learn the role passion and persistence play in regards to talent. You're going to learn how to understand if it's realistic or not to pursue your passion, and what masterful coaching is, why we need it, and where to get some. Hey, Dan. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jacob. It's nice to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm honored that you're taking the time to chat with us today, and I'm particularly interested in the wisdom that you offer around talent and how that's relevant to the generation of young adults who are growing up today and what they can understand more about greatness and talent and how that applies to them in their own life. But before we jump into all that goodness, I'd love to introduce more about you and your story to the people who are listening in on this call. So if you could, can you share some of the challenges that you faced as a young adult and how that led you to be where you are now? Yeah, that's a good. That's a good question. We can. Uh, what is it, the sound they make in Wayne's World? You know, going going backwards. Um, so now I, I grew up in uh, in Alaska, which, which for a writer, it's always a good thing to be an outsider. Um, and I guess that that gave me a little bit of that. There's a challenge that goes with being an outsider. Uh, you don't you know you don't really understand uh, everything when you do come down to live in America. But but in some cases, that's an advantage because you look on it um, sort of more like a. I don't know, like a scientist would, or like someone visiting from Mars, uh, and that's how you know, America seemed to me at times as a kid. And uh, no, I was originally going to go into medicine. I was pretty sure I was going to be a doctor, right up until I actually took the MCATs, and uh, at the last minute, took some time off, went uh, went away, took a long trip by myself, and just kind of had one of those moments where you decide, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. And I went into journalism and got a job, an internship at a magazine. And then, fortunately, it was one of those places where there's a lot of people moving through, and I moved up rather quickly and um, wrote a book, and, and things just started from there. But that, there were a lot of, lot of moments along the way where there was just kind of a, where you sort of, you know, make a leap. And um, fortunately, I was surrounded by good people, and those leaps ended up, ended up, working and they're and they're still sort of working but what's interesting is to sort of go in and look at look at what is what people are around you when you make that leap and how you sort of train for that leap and how you get confident or how you build the competence that uh, that you can deliver on the other side of that leap yeah right on so can you share what one or two of those leaps were for you as a young adult and what that process was like and how you figured out that confidence and confidence part? 
Well, okay, so I was an intern in a magazine. Uh, I think I was an assistant editor at a magazine in Chicago. And down the street was a little league that was being started, a baseball league that was being started by white yuppies to serve a very hard scrabble housing project. So to, um, you know, the league was filled with African-American kids, and you had these sort of white guys that looked like me who were coaching. And so I love baseball, uh, and so I volunteered to be a coach for a year and ended up realizing, look, you know, this is kind of a remarkable little petri dish, this baseball field, uh, and deciding, well, I should try to write about this experience. Um, and so I basically first wrote a magazine article, and I said, before I did that, I looked at all, there are a lot of similar magazine articles like that and tried to figure out what made those work, what kind of reporting made those work, what kind of tone made that work. And, uh, and I, I did, I got a small article, a two-page article in Sports Illustrated. That... I sort of turned into a, a book proposal. I thought, well, this would work as sort of a season in the life of these uh, of these kids and these coaches coming together in this on this field in the center of Chicago, center of America. I sort of did a, a book proposal on that. Um, so stepwise, sort of building and leaping each time, and the book proposal worked, and uh, I ended up writing you know, my first book as a 26-year-old based on that experience. But each time, I really made a study of what that next step would be. Um, I really made a study of similar books, of books that were like that, season in the life books, books that were that dealt with these big American issues of race and poverty and communication. And I analyzed those books and dissected them. Almost my old medical school background came in handy because I really, really, really analyzed those and really tried to figure out what worked and what didn't. Um, I didn't, perhaps because of my medical background, I never came from the idea that an artist just had some natural skill inside them that they could just produce and it was innate to them. They had some magical spark. I knew that I didn't have a magical spark. So I needed to look at people who had captured it, who knew, who had delivered something, figure out how they did it, and then figure out how I might do it too. Um, and it was really slow, difficult, sort of stepwise process with a lot of drafts, a lot of mistakes. But in the end, um, you know, produced uh, produced a, a decent book. Yeah, I've read you write somewhere that for the last few hundred years, the Western culture has understood and explained talent using the idea of this unique identity, kind of the tumble of the cosmic dice that makes everyone different and a few lucky people special. And I think one of the main ideas that I got from the talent code is that genius is made, not born, and that when we scratch the surface of great people we admire, we see an extraordinary amount of effort put into their craft. So can you share with, before we go too far into what the talent code is and, and that, can you share a little bit more about how you think our culture views talent? Yeah, I mean, we get told a story about talent, and we get told this very persuasive, compelling, magical story, and it's the greatest story ever told because there are magical babies in that story, right? The story of Michelangelo, this magical, magical baby who was great at art and who produced the Sistine Chapel. And the story of Michael Jordan, this magical, magical person who had this great jump shot. And it's such a compelling story. This story is like crack, you know? It's so great. You can't help but love this story because it's fantastic. It says that there are angels that walk among us. You know, that's a really good story. However, as you, as you so aptly put it, when you do scratch the surface and you look at how Michelangelo built his skills and you look at how Michael Jordan built his skills, you find this really different blue-collar story of struggle 
and failure and reaching an intense, intense motivation um, that takes a lot of effort and takes a lot of hours. And sort of the scientific data that uh, sort of I think is echoing around in the, in the culture now um, is the number 10,000 hours, which is really kind of a remarkable number. You know, it refers to the, the number of hours that world-class experts spend practicing their craft. Um, and it's really, when you stop to think about that, that number, which sort of exists across all domains, and whether it's a music conductor or a basketball point guard or, uh, or a great speechwriter, that many hours it takes. You know, the question is, what's going on underneath that? Why does it take so long? Because people, it, it takes longer than 8,000 hours. It, nobody's getting into that club in 5,000 hours. It takes a certain amount of time to develop world-class expertise. So the question becomes, what's happening in that process? What's happening in that process of intensive struggle, failure, practice, reaching, rehearsal? What's happening inside? And, and it, it, our attention quickly moves to the human brain. You know, the human brain. We talk about muscle memory. Right? Muscles don't actually have any memory. It's actually all skill, all skill. The Sistine Chapel, Jordan's jump shot, best neurologist in the world. All that stuff happens inside the human brain where we're making connections, and we're making connections move faster and more accurate, moving signals through our brain. So when we look at it that way, when we see that, in fact, world-class expertise is a construction project, when we see that it takes them that long, when we see that everyone is kind of in this intense act of struggle, this blue-collar act, it is uh, kind of an inspiring new way to look at it because it makes our struggles more meaningful. It makes, um, it makes every day sort of matter because the day is a time when you can build a new connection, when you can struggle and reach and emerge slightly better than you were yesterday. Yeah, I love how you frame that in this context of a magical story and, uh, and how we're told this story. And it's a great story and they make movies about it and we drool over it and it's enticing to watch and exciting to listen to. And the thing that also jumps out at me is that pop culture tells us a story growing up as a young adult. We're fed by the media, music, advertisement, movies, that that is the story. And the story is of um, instant gratification of, like, this is where we should be, and it should be easy and effortless and fun, and we're not going to face any challenges along the way. And it really messes with us, I feel. I really think it really messes with us and makes us doubt ourselves when we do start to face those challenges and, and doesn't set us up for that deep practice, which I want to talk more about with you uh, kind of now and, and going forward, is that the talent code, you know, it, it attempts to answer this question, you know, what is the secret to being really, really good at something? And you, un- and you conclude that there are three basic elements. There's deep practice, there's ignition, and there's masterful coaching. So I want to unpack that in the remainder of the interview. And, and starting with deep practice, you say that it's built on a paradox. Struggling in certain targeted ways, that means operating at the edges of your ability where you make mistakes, actually makes you smarter. So can you feel free to touch on any of that, but then transition into what you mean by deep practice and what does that actually entail? Yeah, let me tell you a story about uh, a story that I actually began the book with about a girl named Clarissa who is a clarinet player. She's about 14 years old and she's practicing. She's part of this experiment where they videotaped her practice for years. And and they tracked her progress so they could see what practices were most effective and which ones weren't. And there's one day of practice that she had where uh, she had this incredible acceleration. 
and the practice she was playing this little song that had a had a it was called the golden wedding and and when she practiced the golden wedding she did it in a very unique and kind of scrappy not pretty to look at sort of way she would first of all she had this expression on her face real intense sort of like Clint Eastwood like she's just reaching clenching <laughs> it's very intense and serious and she plays a couple of the phrases, and then she makes a mistake, and it's like there's electricity being shot through the clarinet. Like she feels that mistake. She feels that she played the wrong note. And then she goes back to the beginning, and she hums it. She hums the tune. And then she goes back to the beginning, and she moves her fingers with playing the notes, but without blowing into the clarinet. Now, now picture what's happening in her brain at each time. And the key word in this would be reach. Each time she's sort of reaching for that note, and then she's, and you can almost picture the, the, the wires of her brain lighting up, and she's reaching and trying to hum the note properly, and she's reaching and trying to put the finger in the right way. And then she starts to play again, gets a little bit further, makes another mistake, and then feels that mistake again, and then goes back to the beginning. And it doesn't sound like music. It sounds like hell, you know? It really doesn't sound good at all. But according to the psychologist who did the experiment, her, her learning velocity, which is a lovely word, right? Learning velocity. There is a velocity to our learning at times. She learns 10 times more than she normally does in that time period. She accomplishes more in five minutes of practicing this way than she would accomplish in a month of practicing forever. So this process, this Eastwood phase, this intense targeted reaching, where she's reaching for this exact note and she knows that she's too high and she knows that she's too low. That's what you have to picture what's happening in the brain at that point. You're making new connections. You're, you're, re, you're building a circuit. You're building a circuit, connecting up the wires, and that circuit contains the skill. You know, she could be learning how to you know, shoot bows and arrows. She could be shooting free throws, but the process doesn't change. When you get to the edge of your ability, and you don't just practice, but practice deeply, when you get to the edge of your ability and reach just past it and pay keen attention to when you screw up and fix that, you have to fire, and then you have to fail, and you have to fix. That is when you are constructing something new in your brain. You're building a new connection. You're constructing a skill. It's the opposite of being born with a magical spark. You know, and this isn't to say that some people don't learn at different velocities. It isn't to say that some people aren't born uh, with certain genetic advantages than others. But it is to say that everybody has the same path forward. To, to build something new in your brain is to practice deeply. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about that 10,000-hour figure. 10,000-hour of that, and you can build quite a beautiful skill. So I'm particularly interested in this distinct cycle of actions that this girl was taking and how young adults can apply that into their own life. And the thing that kind of came up for me as you were speaking about her recorrecting as she was going forward was I was afraid that some people may fall into this paralysis of perfection and say, okay, I screwed up. That's it. Like, you know, I don't want to go forward anymore. And so how do we avoid that paralysis of perfection? And, and what do we do? How do we notice when we do screw up? How do we notice that, you know, what action should we be taking at that point that will be most constructive towards applying this type of methodology? Yeah, I think, I think the first step is to reinterpret struggle as a positive. You know, a lot of us have a natural allergy to struggling. When you get to the edge of your ability, it's an it's uncomfortable place to be, you know. It doesn't feel good. But in the exact same way, I mean, think of the brain is sort of like a muscle, right? And when you, when you go to the gym, let's talk about your actual muscles. When you go to the gym, 
you make the most progress when you're lifting weights just on the edge of your ability. It burns, but you interpret that burn in a positive way. Right? You realize, ah, oh, I want to feel the burn, as the saying goes. Well, your brain is built the exact same way, and the burn is more the emotional feeling of failing. So if you learn to tolerate that and reinterpret that, not as a negative, not as something to shy away from, but as something to lean into and to actively cultivate and to lean into that mistake and realize, I made the mistake there. I, made the, I was a little to the left. I need to be more to the right next time. That's the thing. And so that process, in that process, precision is everything. You, know, you need to have a specific target that you're reaching for. If you're a clarinet player, it's that exact note. If you're a baseball player, it's that exact position as you pitch the ball. Um, you need to have a really clear sense of what that is. You need to build that blueprint in your mind, which one reason why one of the most productive things you can do is to stare at good performers. Find the best people who are in the world you're trying to inhabit and study them. Go to school on them. Copy them. You know, in the old view of talent where everything is sort of a natural, beautiful, you know, magical spark, copying is thought of as a bad thing. But in fact, it's a great thing. You should steal without any apology. You should always steal the best stuff from the best people. So you get that blueprint in your mind of what you should be reaching for. And then you want to make a targeted reach toward that. You want to reach toward a piece of it at a time, just, just one chunk. Not the whole complicated motion, but you've got a picture and you're stringing the other wires in your brain. So just do one piece at a time. Like our parents have told us, just, just take on a little bit at a time. Our brains are built up. And then you start chunking little pieces together. And you want to be in a zone where you're making maybe, you don't want to be making it, you don't want to be successful 100% of the time, and you don't want to be successful only like 40% of the time. Typically, a good range is between 60 and 80%, 50 and 80% success rate in each of your reaches. So you're not doing it so seldom as to be frustrating completely, but you're making it, but you're making it occasionally. You're making it fairly often. So that's this kind of sweet spot that learning that educational psychologists talk about. You want to be in the sweet spot, 50 to 80% success rate. You've got this huge smile on my face right now about you redefining struggle and how valuable that is and how big of a roadblock that can just clear up with that ability consciously to have the self-awareness in that moment that you feel the struggle to say, boom, this is a good thing or this symbolizes I'm going forward in, in growth. And then I appreciate you also being specific in the percentage of how often we should be <clears throat> failing and um, having more clarity as far as that, that, that seems really useful and really helpful. So I, I think that one of the things that is going on is previous generations traditionally define success by holding a, a good job and raising a family at least 50 years ago in America to say. And these days it seems like there's a lot more encouragement for young adults to do things like follow their passion and, trace, and chase their dreams. And I think one of the things that occurs for young adults is that we doubt if we actually have what it takes to do what we love. So what role does passion and persistence play in regards to talent and creating a, a life where you do engage in what you love? Yeah, that is, that is always the catchphrase, isn't it? You know, follow your passion, follow your bliss. And it's, it's, it's true to a certain extent, you know. Um, you have to have kind of that deep, deep enjoyment of the daily work in order to 
you know, it, it's hard to be in this zone. It's hard to be all Clint Eastwood every day, right? And, and you're not going to do it. You're not going to put yourself in that sweet spot. You're not going to fail 70%, you know, you're not going to, you know, fail 30% of the time um, if you're not really, really engaged. And so that's, to me, that's the takeaway about passion. The passion is important because it gives you the fuel to do this difficult, effortful work that it takes to get better. And you can, you can enjoy it. You can actually enjoy the burn at, at that level. I mean, but the thing about passion I think it's misunderstood is people, I think, think of it as kind of almost like the Holy Spirit coming down and, and oh, they mistake caring about something for passion. I mean, caring about something and enjoying it is not passion. Passion means enjoying the work. Passion means not caring how hard it or how hard you have to work to get something. It's connected to effort. Um, it's not... It's not simply enjoying something or being attracted to something. That's not enough. We're all attracted to beauty. We're all attracted to great performance. I'm attracted to mm. being a great basketball player. But I, I don't have the, the willingness to do the, to do the work. But the other thing that I think it's misunderstood about passion is that it evolves. It, 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 it adapts with you. Um, it, it is, it's not something that is, that is fixed. You can sometimes develop it in a place where you didn't think you had it after you work hard at something and develop a competence. Passion and competence and skill kind of go hand in hand because as you grow in skill, you really can start to have a passion for something you didn't expect to have a passion for. Um, just in the last couple months, you know, my wife and I did a deal where I have to cook Sunday nights. And I have never really done much cooking in my life. Uh, but put in a position of all of a sudden having to do it and making sort of making the best of it, all of a sudden I find myself really enjoying it. And I can see in the future this could be an area where I want to put in a lot of work and get a lot of enjoyment out of it. I didn't expect that. It was kind of a random thing. But I think it's best in this, in this world to have an open mind about passion and to see them as something that's flexible and not something that you're wedded to. Say, oh, my one passion is, you know, computer programming and that's never going to change. It, it does change because we change and our brains change and our situations change. So, um, so it's something that is, it's kind of a companion throughout life, but it's a companion that it changes along with us, not that it's kind of fixed at work. Man, I'm, I'm so glad I asked that question. That is uh, really cool. It's such a distinction to be made in a day and age where people are just throwing around that term, follow your passion and chase your dreams, and to have some more clarity as to how passion works and how we define passion and that it's not just about doing things that we find enjoyable, but still when we're in that struggle, uh, still wanting to go ahead full force and, and rock it at that, at that point. So thank you for that clarification. And I want to also move into the ignition stage a little bit. So can you, this is the second stage that you describe in the talent code. Can you talk a little bit more about what the ignition is? Well, it clicks into that, you know, we were just, we were just saying about, about passion in a way because doing this hard work and deep practice requires a certain irrationality. It's not totally normal to want to dig into a clarinet song like Clarissa did. It's not totally normal for me to want to, um, you know, when I was working on that book about baseball, to devour 50 books about baseball to figure out what made them work or what, what didn't make them. Um, it takes an irrational bit. And what it takes is a certain identity. You know, what it takes is when something speaks to our identity, when we see, when we see someone that we want to be. You know, we, we all walk around through life with kind of a windshield filled with people. It's filled with our parents. It's filled with our, our coworkers. It's filled with our siblings. Um, 
And when we see someone that we want to become, when we, who we intensely identify with, that ignites a certain type of energy in us. And that energy, that fuel tank, is, is really a key, a key part of the equation. Because without it, you don't have the energy to do the practice required. Without it, you don't have the energy to put forth the effort things that is required to build the skill. So when we do talk about ignition, what we're talking about is that process, just that feeling you have of looking at somebody and saying, that's the person. That's who I want to be. Um, and if we want to increase the odds of that moment happening, what we need to do is sort of fill our windshield with all kinds of people and see who we respond to. And that's one of the things that I think is, is useful for for people that age. Certainly when I was you know, between 17 and, and, and into my 30s, I was constantly looking for models. I was constantly looking for writers who I could imagine being. And sort of either metaphorically or actually sort of spending time studying them, staring at them and figuring out what made them tick. And through that, learning what made me tick. Yeah, it's, that's so cool because so much of being a young adult is about identifying who you are and what you want to do. You know, it's a big <clears throat> identity quest in a sense. And one of the things that you suggested was that we, in order to move forward and, and figure out this identity quest, who am I, what am I here to do, to study the people that we admire and to see who we respond to and why we respond to them. Is there any other wisdom that you would offer as far as this identity quest that young adults are kind of coming into their own skin and figuring out why am I here? What, what am I here to do? And how do I develop a sense of self that I'm comfortable with and, and excited about? Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I would say this. Um, one thing that helped me figure that out at that, at that time in life was the realization that all these cool people that I was looking up to, all these people who, um, who were essentially taking up all the spots of where I wanted to be, we're going to be gone. And it sounds sort of morbid to say, but it's like when you realize, look, the world keeps turning and all these people, they're going to be dead someday and somebody's going to take their place. And that was kind of a strangely liberating <laughs> thought um, at that moment because you never quite believe that, oh, one day I'm going to, I'm going to be that age and I'm going to be one of those people. Because at, the, at, at, at bottom, you know, no matter how old you are, I think if you ask most adults, if you put them under you know, a lot of successful people, if you put them under hypnosis, if you, if you ask them, give them truth serum, they would all say the same thing, which is that everybody sort of feels like they're faking it. Everybody feels a little bit like an imposter. Everybody feels like they don't really deserve it. Everybody feels like they don't quite belong, even the most successful, especially the most successful people. And so this, it's liberating to realize that, and it's liberating to realize that, um, like it or not, you know, the world's going to keep turning, and you're going to find yourself in a spot where if you want to jump for it, if you want to be that person, you'll, you'll have that opportunity. Yeah, so cool. I think another thing that I know I've faced and I think a lot of other young adults face is that we just don't have a good sense of what's realistic and, and what's fantasy. And so much of that is culturally and, familiar and dependent on our family and that they feed our belief systems and how we view things and what we understand we can and can't do in the world. And like, I have friends who want to be music producers or they want to be making their living shooting movies. I once sat on an airplane next to a, a college student who was probably hung over and he told me that he, wanted, he was going to manage the New York Yankees one day. And so it's just, you know, it's all across the board. And I'm wondering what we can do to get a better understanding of what possibilities exist in the world 
And what, which of those possibilities are realistic? And how do we know if we're being realistic and if this is something worth pursuing or if it's just a pipe dream? Yeah, I guess so. But the, the thing to do is you, know, you have to decide on what your metric is. And right now pop culture tells us the metric that the most showy job is the most important one, that, that the Yankees job is the most important job, that the Oscar-winning film director is the most important job. And if you look, use that metric, you'll always be disappointed because no matter how high you go, you'll find that there's, there's somebody who's doing more, there's somebody who's doing better. And one useful way to sort of recalibrate the expectations uh, game is, is to do it by, by realizing the real jobs that matter are the ones that teach the most, the ones where you learn the most. Whoever learns the most wins, really. Hmm. And whether that's taking an internship at a, at a, at a, at a failing magazine, uh, you know, that can be a place where you can learn an incredible amount. Um, it's not a showy, it's not a show for, in my experience. You know, my first job in newspapers was with, uh, was with exactly that, a failing, failing newspaper where they didn't have enough sports writers to go around. But because of that, I was able to do uh, kind of a stunning amount of writing in that time. I learned more than I could imagine, more than I ever could have in school. It was the, probably the greatest job I've ever had. Um, and it wasn't because it was not a showy job, but, uh, but it w ended up being really, really valuable. If you look at the long run, this is a marathon. And the marathon is going to be won by, by the people who make the most learning happen in each day. And the most learning does not happen in the showiest of spots. In fact, being in a showy spot, as anybody can tell you who's worked on a big motion picture or who has, who has worked at Goldman Sachs, you don't necessarily learn that much in those places where the spotlight burns the hottest. You learn in the dark places. You learn in the small places. You learn in the struggling places where you can really chip in and be a part of something. So um, if you look for those for expectations, if you look to places where you can really, really test and reach and struggle and be a full part of the process and not sort of standing on the side making copies, um, that's the place where you're going to learn the most. I mean, there's, there's that great tradition in business of people who come up from the mailroom, right? You know, so many CEOs, I started out in the mailroom, I started out in the mailroom. Well, think of the mailroom as, as a... <laughs> as a learning opportunity and you realize the mailroom is the place that took that person in contact. He got to go into the office and open the mail of the, of the top executives. They could study that. They could, he had sort of a bird's eye view, a sort of floating in a glass bottom boat, as you, if you will, over the, over the whole company. If, for somebody who wanted to work hard at that, that would be the ultimate learning job. And, you know, it, it doesn't, it, so, the, so the, if, you, if you look at jobs for their learning potential and not for their Facebook potential. Yeah. So the third part to the talent code is the, the masterful coaching. And let's, let's talk a little bit more about that. I think one of the things as young adults that we face is that we don't always have coaches and mentors and people outside of our immediate network to get wisdom from, like, like this wisdom that you're offering young adults right now. And I have such a big smile on my face just thinking about how valuable this is, and I'm 27 now. If I listened to this conversation when I was 21 years old, it, it would have sung to me. You'd like, to, and it still does sing to me. But it's just one of the things that that is, I think, a big deal is figuring out where to find that coaching from. So one is, you know, what does masterful coaching look like, and then how can we go about finding it? Well, it looks like um, it usually looks like somebody 
who's older than you and somebody who you're a little bit scared of, um, that, uh, who's, who's very authoritative sometimes. Um, you know, the master coaches that I found uh, tended to fit that description. You know, and in this case, I think people are also looking for um, sort of mentors. You know, people are looking are looking for mentors. It's it's hard. I mean, the main distinction to draw is that you're not looking for a friend. You know, you're not looking for a friend. You're looking for somebody who knows this world, who knows this world deeply, whether that world is software or advertising or, or oil drilling or whatever. Somebody who knows it deeply and is willing to let you stand there and watch them and, and who's willing, you know, to coach you to a certain extent. And that becomes a question of sort of personal chemistry. But it, mostly it becomes a question of where that person is, of who that person is. And, and whether or not they're willing to kind of take you on. Finding somebody who's willing to do that is, is priceless. And a lot of the better organizations these days are making mentorship not sort of a casual optional part of the program, but an essential part of their, of their personnel <coughs> program, where everybody gets a mentor. There's a, there's a great company called Unistan, Hindustan Unilever, Indian company, that produces more leaders than any company in the world. They have something like a 1,000 former employees on various boards around the world. And their leaders spend 60% of their time mentoring. They spend most of their time doing mentoring because that is what cultivates skill. That's what cultivates learning. They realize how important that is. So it, it's tough for a young person to kind of be in the position of looking for a mentor. It's sort of like you're, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a singles bar, you know, looking for somebody to, to chat with. Um, <laughs> And maybe that's the appropriate analogy. Maybe, maybe the answer here is to, be, is to identify people who would be in a position uh, that, could, that could help you, um, to identify people you relate to, people you could imagine becoming. You know, whose job do you want? Okay, that's that person. Then go and hang out with them and see what makes them tick, see what, see what they can tell you, see how they behave. Um, to go back to that mailroom example for a second, just, just hanging around people like that, you pick up an amazing amount. That's one of the things when it comes to, to, uh, to sort of the modern age and how much of it happens online, that's one of the things that is a disadvantage of, of the sort of virtual world that we live in now, that you lose that kind of physical contact, that, that level of observation. At, at a magazine where I worked as a, as a young man, I, mean, I spent a lot of time just hanging out in the office of the best editors and chatting and you know, talk, talking to them about captions or headlines or how they would think about that story. And that stuff is that's really valuable. That's something that can't happen online and, uh, and it can only happen in person. And if I didn't work in a company that offered the direction that I'm looking to go in as far as my passion, and let's say I was freelancing or let's say that I worked a nine to five and then at, from five to nine was pursuing things that were more in alignment with what I really cared about and valued, how do you go about reaching out to them then? How do, you, how do you approach the people who you're talking about, these mentors that we want to spend time with? What's the approach to take in, in reaching out to them? I mean, as a journalist, I've found that the best approach to, to, for anybody is to talk to someone and say, look, I'm fascinated by what you do. Tell me about it. Tell me about your job. Tell me about it. And people love telling about their job. People love that. People like talking about themselves. People like, like uh, an approach like that. So I think just being upfront and simple and curious and forthright is, uh, is, a, is an appropriate way to go. And 
you know, be transparent. And they might say, look, I don't have any room for anybody like that in my life right now. But if it's, you know, if, it's, if there's a young journalist who called me and said, look, I want to buy you a cup of coffee once a month, um, most reasonable people would, would say yes to that because it's a fulfilling relationship. Yeah, and just to bring that point home, and thank you again. I mean, this is a very similar interaction that we had where I reached out to you and just let you know I was a big fan of you and your work and that I was doing something that I was really passionate about and thought that you'd make an incredible contribution to this project. And we figured out how to make it happen. And that's like a, a perfect example. And again, want to just thank you for that and, uh, and for walking the, walking the talk. No problem. It's a pleasure. Enjoy it, Jacob. Cool. Fantastic. Well, let's, let's kind of transition and, and wrap it up. Um, I know you, you just came out with a book called The Little Book of Talent, and I'm wondering, you, in the book you release 52 tips, kind of you distill the wisdom that you've found and all the research that you've done and all the expert people um, who put in all that time to, to be great, and you've, you've come up with 52 tips. Which two or three tips do you think would be most valuable for yourself back being a young adult? I think steal without apology. I wish I would have uh, caught onto that one earlier. The idea that you really need to make a study and not look inside yourself, but look outside yourself at the people who are already doing it really, really well. Um, I think the idea of embracing repetition, that's another one of the tips, to embrace repetition. Not to see it as drudge work, not to see it as a chore, but to really see it as the single most powerful tool evolution invented for making a fast brain. The repetition is not a drag. It's actually a beautiful thing. I wish I would have known that early on. Um, and uh, see, one of the other tips in the in the book that I enjoy very much right now is is take a nap. That's another one that I'm uh, I think is a, <laughs> is, a, is a good tip in a lot of ways. So uh, I pick I pick those three. Fantastic. Well, I took a nap before this call, and I plan to take one later on as well. So I'm thrilled to hear that I'm on the right path. And again, just want to thank you so much for your time and effort and energy and wisdom and heart to have this conversation with me. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, same here, Jacob. I love this chat. Now let's take a look at some of my favorite big ideas from it. Big idea number one is reinterpreting struggle. We get told the story about talent, a magical Disney fantasy story. It is such a compelling story. It is like crack. You can't help but love this story. But when we scratch the surface, you find a lot of failure, effort, struggle, and a lot of hours. You need to reinterpret struggle. Struggle doesn't feel good, but it is. The same way that when you go to the gym, you interpret the struggle of lifting weights as a good thing. You want to feel that burn. Your brain is built the same way on an emotional level. If you learn to feel the feeling of failure and interpret that as a good thing and use it as a guide, that's the process that can take you to the next level. That brings us to big idea number two, which ties directly in, and it's don't mistake passion. It's important to follow your passion so you can enjoy your work. You're not going to allow yourself to continue to fail unless you're really engaged. Passion is important because it gives you the fuel to do the work when it's challenging. But, here's the but, don't mistake caring about something as passion. Caring about something and enjoying it isn't passion. Passion means enjoying it when it gets tough and not caring about how hard you have to work at it. It's not about enjoying something or being attracted to it. It's about the willingness to do the work. And remember, 
passion also adapts with you, so you can develop passion in a place where you didn't think you have it. Passion and confidence and skill grow hand in hand. That brings us to big idea number three. Whoever learns the most wins. It's easy to get seduced by pop culture into thinking that you need to get the most flashy job in order to be successful. But the real jobs that matter are the ones where you learn the most. As Daniel says, whoever learns the most wins. Now, this can be an internship. If you look at life in the long run, it's a marathon, and the marathon is won by people who learn the most, the people who are learning each and every day. Learning doesn't happen in the showy spots. It happens in the trenches and in the struggle. Soul Sibling, thank you so much for rocking with us. I appreciate you, and I appreciate that you're using your time and your energy toward making yourself a better person and the world a better place. So if you'd like to keep in touch, I'd love it if you subscribe to the podcast, and I'm excited to deepen our relationship, to get to know each other better over time, and to see how I can help you solve meaningful challenges and create your most fulfilled life. We've got a great community over here, And we run retreats all over the world. We've got people who connect with each other and support each other in living the most fulfilled life. And what I'd suggest for your next step is to grab a copy of The 12 Things Happy People Do Differently. It's a scientific-based approach to happiness, and there's a lot of great wisdom out there, but this in particular is researched back from some of the world's leading positive psychologists in the world, and it's super grounded, super practical, how you could do these 12 things that happy people do differently and rock it. The article's been shared over 100,000 times on Facebook, and there's some magic in there. So in order to grab a copy of that, you can go to thankyoujacob.com. Sounds simple, and it is. Thankyoujacob.com, and uh, grab that immediately, and I will keep in touch through personal emails that I send out a couple times a month and all that goodness. So for now, sending you lots of love. Keep it real. Follow your heart, but bring your head. Peace.